Please be seated. <clears throat> All right, so it's question 97 in the catechism, as I was saying, in the shorter catechism. And uh, we are at uh, going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for our scripture reading later on. So as we do continue our study of the sacraments at this time, we're specifically looking at the Lord's Supper. And as we get underway, I just want to review a little bit and remind you what a sacrament is. One way we can define it is that it is a ritual that is instituted by our Lord in which he takes ordinary physical objects and appoints actions to represent the application of Christ's saving work in us, using those uh, physical objects or elements to do that. We have seen that with baptism, the Lord uses the washing of water to represent the washing away of our sins. We come to Christ when he baptizes us with his Holy Spirit. That's the, what happens to us spiritually when we are converted The Holy Spirit changes our hearts so that we are born again and uh, born of the Spirit, as it were. And then we are able to receive Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And not only that, but when we come to Christ, Christ also washes our guilt by applying his atoning sacrifice. So there's a twofold washing of actual changing of our heart and then cleansing us from guilt so that we're completely forgiven and sin is taken, cleansed from our record. We cannot experience with our physical senses this washing, okay? either the spiritual cleansing of our persons or the washing away of our guilt. There's no way for us to see that with our, our senses. So to help us, God has given us baptism to make it clear to us that Christ really does cleanse us when we enter into his kingdom, that he's the one that does that and must do that. Cleansing from sin is what is done at the door of his kingdom so that we can come in. And baptism is the Lord's testimony that he does this at the door, at the gateway. And after we have been baptized, the Lord has appointed that we take bread and wine and eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of him. As we saw last week, this presents him in particular as the one who is sanctified or sacrificed to take away our sins. The bread represents his body and the wine represents the blood of the new covenant, his blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. By partaking of these elements, God testifies to us that we have a share in his sacrifice, that he spiritually nourishes us with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not only are we to remember that our connection with God is through the Son of God crucified for us at the table, but we are also to know and understand that we're fed by him who is sacrificed. We have a connection with Jesus in that way. Just as we cannot see the cleansing of us, so we cannot see the nourishing of us, the spiritual nourishing of us. It's not something that is visual to us. To help us see it then, this is what he does. He gives us these symbols so that we can see that we partake of, of the blessing of Christ for our spiritual nourishment. 
That brings us to this week's topic that he actually, how do we come to the Lord's table rightly so that we are benefited and we are nourished? Or as the catechism puts it, how do we come worthily to the Lord's Supper? We might say, how do we come in such a way that we will be blessed with the spiritual nourishment and the blessing that God has for his people in the Lord's Supper? How do we approach it? question in our catechism that deals with this is question 97. So let's confess this as God's people. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? I'm sorry, let me, let me yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> question 97, I, I, I did it right. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Our scripture reading that corresponds with this is 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. In this passage, Paul speaks about coming in a, in a worthy manner. The Corinthians were coming in an unworthy manner. It speaks of uh, them doing that and him correcting them from that. He's, he's showing them they're coming in the wrong way. So he's warning them that instead of receiving blessing, they actually receive judgment when they come in the wrong way. We saw or we see in Deuteronomy, we read in Deuteronomy 29 today, but it mentioned the curses of the covenant. There are curses for God's people when they approach him as if he is not a holy God. So we want to look at this because, of course, it is written for us in Scripture. What is addressed here to the Corinthians, it's written for our benefit, for our admonition and learning to teach us not to come in the wrong way. It's not just to, to teach the Corinthians about that and to warn them but also us as God's people today. So please listen now as I read this passage to you. It's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 and following. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worst, for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, we need to comment about that. It was supposed to be to eat the Lord's Supper. So he says, when you come together, you're supposed to be coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. But that's not what you guys are doing. You're not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. They're coming in the wrong way. So again, verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. The first thing that I want you to see here is that it matters very much how you come to the Lord's Supper. This passage shows us that you don't automatically receive blessing just by coming. It's uh, by just eating the bread and, and drinking the wine. In other words, somebody comes in and they don't know what's going on. And they say, oh, they're having some food. And they eat a bit of the bread and wine. It's not going to, they're not going to receive benefit from that. It shows that if you eat, in fact, it shows that if you eat in an unworthy manner, you actually eat in a way that's destructive and harmful to you, judgment to yourself. Look at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. It is bad enough to not receive the blessing that is intended at the Lord's Supper. Even worse, to receive a curse from coming to the table. It's intended to be a sacrament where we're spiritually nourished, where we deepen our love for Jesus Christ who was crucified for us and where we are comforted in him and as the one who saved us and working in us. But if you come in an unworthy manner, in an unworthy manner, it hardens you. It makes you more resistant. It makes you love him less and regard him less. God actually powerfully works in us when we come to give us fresh grace in our walk with him and with the Lord. When we come in a worthy manner, he actually feeds us spiritually when we come rightly. To miss out on that is bad enough. But when it says drink judgment to ourselves, that we're chastened of the Lord. Look at verse 17 where Paul begins this discourse. He says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. What you're doing is making you worse. Come together as a church. It's supposed to be for the better. We're supposed to grow when we come together and come around the Lord's table. But because of the way that they were coming to the Lord's Supper, it was actually worse than if they'd stayed at home. Instead of receiving his blessing, they actually fell under judgment when they came together They came to this because they came in an unworthy manner. Now, in, in what way did they come under God's judgment? Does this mean that they were cut off from God's grace and condemned to hell? No, it does not mean that. You can see it in the context. The judgment that's spoken of here is the judgment that God brings to true believers to correct them so that they will not be condemned with the world. Now, it's true that unbelievers may come to the supper and they also would receive judgment from God, like I mentioned before, especially that they would become more hardened and stuff. 
But it says here to those who are believers in verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And in a way that would be true with unbelievers too that come, of course, always wrongly to the Lord's Supper, that God is, is chastening to, to bring them round. He chastens his, his people in, in covenant community. This is the judgment that God calls the chastisement of sons here, though, that's being spoken of, what he does to those that he loves, to those that he has chosen and that he's going to bless. He chastens them to correct them so that they will be faithful to him. You see, sometimes unbelievers will be chastened at the Lord's table with the view that they will become believers. God's working in them. Uh, But that doesn't mean saying that it's done to believers doesn't mean that it's trivial. Oh, well, it's just to the, you know, to those who are believers. In this case, God actually put some of the Corinthians to death. So it wasn't a light thing. He put them to death for coming to the table in the wrong way. And verse 29, where he says, it says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He then says in verse 30, For this reason, because you came in this wrong way, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. When he says many sleep, do you know what that means? Does that mean that they were sleepy at church or dozing off? No, it means that they died. It's a way of speaking of the death of believers. Their bodies were asleep until the resurrection. Rather than letting them go on and profane the table, God put a lot of them to death. Notice it says many. It's quite a statement, isn't it? This was the way to put a stop to such behavior, not only in the ones who died, but also in the ones who saw that it brought death upon others. Notice as well that many were made physically weak and sick. There was very serious consequences to coming in an unworthy manner. Now, I need to point something out here, too. The Lord often brings judgment like this when he is giving new revelation to his people. Have you noticed that in Scripture before? When there's new revelation given, judgment is more visible. Examples are easy to find. There is this example of the Corinthians dying and getting sick for coming to the Lord's table in the wrong way. There's the example in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, where they are struck dead for exaggerating about how much they had given. How often do you see that happen today? It's not something that happens as a regular course, is it? There is the example of Israel worshiping the golden calf when God killed many of them as a punishment for that. But then afterward, they worship in the high places. They worship the calves under Jeroboam, and they were condemned about it, but they kept doing that sort of thing for, for years. And there wasn't anyone that, well, there was death along the way, but for years there was not any real straightforward consequence There's the example in the Old Testament of Nadab and Abihu, right when the priestly services were just beginning and they were struck for offering the wrong kind of fire on God's altar. Priests did way worse than that later and nothing happened. We all know that much worse things are routinely done in the church without any tangible reaction like that um, from, from the Lord. So why? Why does he do it with new revelation? Well, he does it particularly when new revelation is given as part of that revelation. It's to show us how displeased he is 
with behavior that is contrary to the revelation that he has just given, to what he has just revealed. Why does he do that? He wants to make himself clear. He, he makes himself clear in this way, and he expects us to remember what he thinks about it. So he doesn't go on doing it on and on and on. He does it at the beginning, and the lesson is supposed to stick with us. If we don't receive his message, something even worse happens to us. What we looked at this morning. We just start to drift away into spiritual decline over the generations until the lampstand of our church is taken away or uh, as, as individuals that we apostatize. We end up being like the, as a church, we, we become like the United Church or something like that where we're just a political church that doesn't preach the gospel anymore. That's what it means for the lampstand to take, be taken away. There's no light there anymore. There's no light of truth. And how do we get there? We drifted there from doing all these things. How did Israel get so messed up so that there were only 7,000 in Israel that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal? They drifted into that over years and years because God didn't address it like specifically directly as he had in, in various times. He did to a large extent, but not, not as much as at the beginning when they worshiped the golden calf or things like that. So the message for us to take away in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 30 is that God is highly displeased when we come to his table in an unworthy manner. We will not be blessed at his table when we come in an unworthy manner. But what does it mean to come to the supper in an unworthy manner? That's the next thing we need to look at. After all, none of us are worthy, are we? Saying, oh, I'm so worthy, I can come to the Lord's table. No, that's not what it's talking about. Uh, it means that we profane the Holy Sacrament. That word profane, that's a good word to have in your vocabulary. What does it mean? Do you remember what profane means? Can you define it? It means that you take something that is holy or sacred and you treat it as if it is something common or ordinary. That's where the idea of profanity comes from. God's curse is something that is very sacred, you see, and people use profane speech. They take it upon themselves to hurl out curses as if that's something that's just common. And it's not. It's a sacred thing. We, don't, we, we take God's name in vain when we curse and do that. Or if we talk about sexual things in a crass way, we profane what is sacred, what is holy. The marriage bed is holy. And we make it into something that is common and profane. To use another illustration, Esau is called a profane man because he did not have a regard for holy things, in particular for his birthright, a special holy birthright that he had from God. He said, what good is it to me if I'm going to die? He didn't understand the significance of that birthright. What good is the promise of a Messiah that would come years later if he doesn't come in my lifetime? How is that going to help me to, to have a, you know, more servants and a nicer house, better food? How is that going to benefit me? I don't see any, any use of it. He had no regard for eternal things, only for food and clothing. Remember, Esau was happy later because he said, oh, I've got a lot now. I'm okay. Like, I don't care if you get you know, some of the birthright, some of the inheritance doesn't matter. I'm, I'm good. That, that was his attitude. It, it, it was nice that he was friendly to Jacob then, but he wasn't in a good way. Consider what the Corinthians did then to profane the Lord's Supper. 
they acted like it was a common meal. In verse 20 through 22, Paul explains this. First, in verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. I emphasized that verse when we read it. They were supposed to be coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, but they'd forgotten all about that, that they were eating the Lord's Supper. They had turned it into a common meal, like, like we have downstairs. That was their Lord's Supper, you know, just coming and eating together. And this was a problem that they had in the early church that was actually rectified by Paul's instruction here to them. Because it, it was, they were mingling the holy meal with a common meal. And uh, it, 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 they were making a meal that was supposed to have sacred significance into a meal that was just a common meal. They actually made it into a selfish and overindulgent meal. Look at what Paul describes in verse 21. He says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, this may sound almost too outlandish. You mean they actually got drunk when they were supposed to be coming to the Lord's Supper? That, that's what it says. Consider their background. It doesn't, it's not so crazy to think about. What, what was their background? How did they worship in their pagan temples? Two elements, fornication and drunkenness. They had temple prostitutes, and they had actually drugs and drink that they would get themselves into a spiritual frenzy where they were considered that they were filled with the Spirit. You know, Paul talks to the Corinthians actually in, in this very letter in the next chapter about, you know, when you come together, that the Spirit carries you along wherever He wishes. That that's not the way it is with a Christian. The Spirit gives us self-control. He doesn't take us over and lead us around so that we roll around on the floor or bark like a dog or laugh like a hyena or whatever. That's not the way that the Spirit works. That's pagan spirituality, where you're possessed and you're taken over by the, the demon or the God. But Christian spirituality is convert concursus, where the Spirit works in us to enable us to obey God and to serve Him and to do things that are, are pleasing to Him. So they had these drunken feasts all the time, and they were bringing some of that into the church. That's the tendency, isn't it? To worship the way the pagans around us are worshiping. This is what we always did. Hey, we got early in the Spirit, you know, and uh, let, let's do that here. So it was a matter of worshiping God in the way of their culture rather than the way that He had appointed In verse 22, Paul tells them to have their common meals and feasts at home, not when they gather as a church to eat the Lord's Supper. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. He says, look, if you're going to have a big feast like that, do it at home. The focus of the Lord's Supper is not on having a big feast. The focus of the Lord's Supper is on remembering Christ and on having communion in his body and blood. Now, some of the Israel, uh, Israel's uh, Old Testament feasts were where they would have a big, huge feast and invite all their friends and have a, you know, a lot of rich food and everything. And as Christians, of course, it's very appropriate for us to get together and enjoy good meals together. That's what he says. You, know, do, you can do that at home, and we, we do it here downstairs, but we don't do it as part of our worship anymore because that was an Old Testament thing that is now 
it's now brought into this simple, this is my body, this is my blood, taking the bread and wine and doing what we do with it. So you see the focus of the Lord's Supper is not on having a big feast, not a common meal for filling your belly and having a good time. It's a holy sacrament for remembering Christ and for feeding upon him. We have enough tradition about us now, a good kind of tradition, that we don't typically profane the meal the way the Corinthians did. I I don't know of any churches where people are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Perhaps you would know one in the city, but I (laughs) I don't know any that do that. The danger for us is to treat the supper as a trivial routine. That's how one of the ways that we profane the supper today, to receive the bread and wine in a perfunctory way. To just go through the motions without thinking about the fact that we are engaged in a sacred holy act that calls for reverence and careful attention. The cup which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Yes, brothers and sisters, we actually partake of Christ crucified for us when we come to this table. He is spiritually present to feed us whenever we come. Now, the, like Jesus said when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, the words that I speak to you are spiritual. Like we come, we actually eat physical bread and wine, but in doing so, God is pleased to feed us and nourish us with Christ who is crucified. We're dealing with holy things. The sacrifice of the eternal God who became flesh that he might die for us. This is the infinite, holy all-powerful Son of God who made the world and who became flesh in order that he might offer himself for our sins. We are communing with this one through whom we have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, communing in his blood. Do you see what an insult it is to treat something this sacred, so precious, so holy, as if it were something of little consequence? This is something that was just common, just ordinary. That's to profane the supper. It is a violation of the third commandment that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To treat our holy God and even his self-sacrifice as if it is an ordinary thing, is not, if, as if it's not worth much, is a great travesty. We're, we're thinking about maybe the ball game, you know, or the way we're going to decorate our house or whatever while we're uh, drinking the cup and, and, and eating the bread. Uh, it, it's not the, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Is it not communion of the blood of Christ here? And you're, you're just oblivious to that. What an offensive thing it is to our God. He will not hold you guiltless if you take his name in vain. It says in verse 27, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? He's guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. That's true, to, that's true today as it ever was. So what are we to do then when we come to the Lord's table, lest we profane it? Well, we're to examine ourselves lest we come in an unworthy manner. This is what we're told to do by the apostle in verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. First of all, you need to examine your profession of faith. You should not come to the table unless you have a credible profession of faith. That involves two things. First, that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And secondly, that you're turning away from sin that, uh, in order to serve Christ. 
like I talked about this morning, if you're going over toward the, uh, if you're being drawn into lust, covetousness, or bitterness, or something like that, you turn away from that and turn back to when you come rightly to the Lord's table because you're dealing with holy things. There needs to be faith and repentance. You need to be the one who has sincerely come to Jesus Christ and who is sincerely walking in Him now. Furthermore, since the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, your profession is to be examined by the elders of the church before you come for the first time. We live in a day when a lot of people don't understand or accept the role of the church in these things. People do not recognize that God and the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, appointed elders to determine in accordance with guidance from God's holy word who is to be baptized and who is to come to the Lord's table, as well as who should be removed from the Lord's table. We recently looked at the requirements for baptism. When we studied about baptism, the elders are only to baptize those who have a credible profession of faith along with their little children who are not capable of making a profession of faith. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, the elders are to admit those that they have admitted by baptism as long as they continue to maintain a credible profession. Let's say that a man is caught stealing and he does not repent. He should be suspended from the Lord's table until he repents. And children who do not yet have a profession, though baptized, are not to be admitted until they have a mature, credible profession of faith. They are admitted to baptism on the basis of whose profession? Not their own, but their parents' profession is the one that's examined. But the Lord's Supper is different than baptism. It requires a, prof- a personal pr- profession for each person who partakes. It's easy to see how it's different. Baptism shows what God does to us. He washes us. The minister representing him administers baptism and washes, sprinkles water on us to show what God does. But the Lord's Supper shows us what we do. We take and eat. Okay, the command is to be washed by someone else, but we are commanded to take and eat the bread and the wine. We feed upon Christ crucified. It's not something that is done to me, washing me, but something that I do, I eat and drink. Now, that eating and drinking is fundamentally a spiritual eating and drinking. Of course, anybody can do a physical eating and drinking. But a spiritual eating and drinking requires understanding on the part of the one receiving it. In this case, an infant's bapti- in, in the case of an infant's baptism, the parents are responsible for presenting their child. So it is their faith that is examined, not the child's. We've had people come and ask us to baptize their children that don't believe. They don't have a profession of faith. And said, no, I can't do that. I remember one woman that came, a sister of someone in our church, and wanted that to be done. And I said, well, I'd love to baptize your child. Let's sit down and talk about what is required. And I told them, you need to come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and <laughs> receive him. And then you can bring your child you know, to, to baptism. But with the Lord's Supper, the one coming, the one that's eating is the one who is responsible. And therefore, the one eating needs to have the credible profession of faith. 
Baptism shows us that the children of believers are accepted in God's kingdom on the basis of their parents' profession. Their parents are responsible to bring them to church, to discipline them, to pray for them, and to nurture them in the word. The Lord's Supper reminds us that they must make their own profession of faith when they grow up. When they get of age to do that, then they are responsible for themselves, looking after themselves and attending church, for correcting themselves, for saying that their prayers, for continuing in the word, for examining themselves, for discerning the Lord's body when they come to the table. Little child, when you, the parent watches them and sees them going off to the rocks of destruction, as we talked about, calls them back to the pathway. Now you do that with older children or other, any, any adult later on too. But when we're older, then we have the discernment to, to know that we need to examine ourselves and pull away. So it's not a transition from being outside of Christ to being in Christ, but it's a transition from being the, the responsibility being your parents to the responsibility being your personal responsibility. So you see that with the Lord's Supper, there is a twofold examination. You are to examine yourself and you're to submit to the examination of the elders. If, if you find that you're sincere and the elders find that your profession is a valid Christian profession, then you belong on the, the communion role. But you also need to examine yourself each time you come to be sure that you are prepared to come in a worthy manner on that particular occasion. Now, some churches that used to have an examination of the members any time before they came to the Lord's Supper. They didn't come to the Lord's Supper every week, but they would have uh, examinations each time. But that's not called for. The requirement is for the individual to do it each time. So supposing that you have a credible profession of faith overall and have been admitted, the question now is whether you're ready to come worthily on the day that the supper is being administered. What are you to examine? Well, I'll use the phrases that are from the catechism. First of all, you're to examine whether you have knowledge to discern the Lord's body. Are you like the Corinthians who are eating the sacred bread and drinking the sacred wine without due consideration that it represents the Lord's body? You profaning it, not discerning. In verse 29, that's how Paul describes unworthy eating of the supper. He says he calls it not discerning the Lord's body. Like you're looking at his common bread and wine, something you get drunk on. You're just partaking without even thinking about the Lord. Let me clarify something here. Some have been confused into thinking not discerning the Lord's body refers to not discerning the other members of the church. As you know, the members of the church are often referred to as Christ's body. People think that this is talking about the church members because Paul had been criticizing the Corinthians for eating before others have come. But it is clear from the immediate context that when 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 speaks of discerning the Lord's body, it's talking about what is talked about in the immediate context. The thing that stands out as a striking thing at the Lord's Supper that Jesus was quoted to have said in verse 24, this is my body, he says, broken for you. He's talking about his body broken. And he's saying, this is what you must discern, Paul is saying. This is the thing that stands out in the discourse. It is his body that was sacrificed that the Corinthians were not discerning, not their fellow church members. When we come to the table, we need to be sure that we are discerning 
that the bread and the wine are the body and blood of Christ and not just common, ordinary bread and wine, but bread and wine that represent his body and blood. The second thing you should examine is whether you have faith to feed upon him. In other words, do you believe that in coming to this table, Christ will, in fact, spiritually nourish you? Because you're not spiritually feeding if you don't think that. What are you doing? Just having a snack? I mean, what, this is something you have faith that he's actually that he actually feeds you. There is a promise in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup that is the communion uh, that you have communion in the body and blood of Christ, that we all partake him of him when we eat and drink in a worthy manner, that we are strengthened to love God better and to serve God better. If you're not looking to him in faith to feed you when you come, then you don't come in a worthy manner. And then you are to examine your repentance, love, and new obedience. With repentance, you're consider, to consider if there is any sin you know of that you've not repented of. Maybe you're a guy who's been taking second looks at women to lust after them. Repent of that before you partake of the Lord's Supper. Or maybe there is something that you lied, someone you lied to and you still haven't made that right. You're, you're harboring a lie. You need to go and deal with that. Don't come to the table until you repent of your lie. And with love, maybe you're harboring bitterness against someone who yelled at you or said some harmful things about you. You're bitter and you have not gone to that person to, to deal with it, to offer forgiveness to them, to reconcile with them. Or maybe they have asked you to forgive them and you wouldn't forgive them. You're still angry and bitter toward them. Or maybe you have resentment for your spouse or for your parents that you've never settled in your heart. You need to renew your love for them. You need to ask the Lord to help you to love them before you come to the table. And of course, there is to be love for God. I mean, how can you look at Christ crucified for you and not deepen your love for the Lord? To come to him without love is to come unworthily. Sure, your love is not what it ought to be. I'm not saying that it will ever will be, but surely it ought to be there so that if the Lord should say to you, as he said to Peter, you know, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? You should be able to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then there is new obedience. That needs to be in your life. Okay, the question here is this. Are you growing? New obedience, not just old obedience. Are you eager to become more and more like Christ? Or are you content to stagnate and just remain where you are in your walk? What sin are you putting off? What, sin are you, what, what, what godliness are you putting on? If you're stagnant, don't come to the Lord's table until you're ready to look to Jesus for fresh, new vigor and spiritual life. Remember, you're coming to feed upon him for new life. You come hypocritically if you don't come for new life. You need to be hungry that you go on feeding. If you're content to go on as you are, why are you coming to the Lord's table for nourishment? It's hypocrisy. It is hypocritical to, to come when you're not hungry. By coming and eating, you're testifying before God that you're hungry for new life in Christ. But now don't make this too severe either. Sometimes you come hungering to be hungry. In other words, you know that you're not as hungry as you should be, but you want to be. And so you come to the Lord's table saying, Lord, make me hungry. Give me an appetite to grow. And then you're coming in the right way. Yeah, 
that, that it's important not to be too severe. Sometimes people will restrict themselves from the Lord's Supper when they shouldn't. If you have these things, knowledge to discern the Lord's body, faith to feed upon Him, repentance, love, and a new obedience, then happy are you when you come to the Lord's table. You will surely meet Christ at the table. You will see His great love for you. You will see His glory and His excellent majesty. You will marvel that He has been crucified for you. You will bring glory and honor to Him and simply delight in Him. You you know, it's the same way when we read the Word, isn't it? We can come and read the Word in a way that's unworthy. We can read it and not not look at it as a sacred holy thing, just kind of go through the motion. Or we can read it and be engaged in feeding and rejoicing, praising God, thanking Him for what we read, taking in the warnings, all of those kind of things. You bring glory and honor to Him when you come in a worthy manner to the Lord's table. How thankful you will be to Him for doing what He has done. Your gratitude will be deepened at the table when you look afresh at and consider afresh what has Christ done for me? And your resolve to live for him will be deep. He will see all of this and he will be very pleased. You will also be nourished by him at the table. He will give you the grace that you seek. Renewed love and joy, renewed assurance, renewed strength, renewed hope. There will be a fullness of life that you will receive for having come worthily to the Lord's table. But let me warn you that it will not always be this way when you come, even when you come in a worthy manner. Sometimes your experience at the table will be better than others, just like when you read the word. Sometimes we are dry and we may not even know why. But if we can come at least yearning for the blessing of the Lord, then it's right for us to come. You know, even if you say, well, I didn't get on so well. The larger catechism has questions that deal with this idea of how did it go at the Lord's table? You looked, how did I prepare? How did I do at the table? How did I get on there? Yes, even when you're weak and doubting, if you desire to be strengthened, then come with that desire and look to God and he will be pleased with the way you come. Even if he doesn't immediately reward, maybe he wants you to seek it longer for some reason. Come with that desire week after week. Do not let Satan keep you away when you need to be coming. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He wants to separate you from Christ and think you have no fellowship with him when you're going through a dry period. He wants to change coming in a worthy manner to being deserving of God's acceptance. You do not come to the table because you deserve his acceptance. Coming in a worthy manner means the whole point is that we look to Jesus Christ because we are not ourselves worthy. Worthy coming is looking to Christ, not being so good that I can come. He wants you to think of Jesus, not Satan wants you to think of Jesus as a severe taskmaster who is a hard man that, that will not rejoice in your progress, one that demands perfection and and rejects you. If you come, he doesn't deal with us that way as those who are redeemed by his blood. He receives us. Know then that the Lord is very tender toward us. And if we come in weakness, seeking his help, that pleases him. That's the way to come. Don't look at him as that master who makes harsh demands of you. 
but look at him as a holy and tender father who is there to bless you and benefit you and encourage you at the table. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And a sinner is worthy to come to the table when a sinner admits his sin and comes looking to Jesus for mercy and grace to deliver him from his sin. That's what coming to the Lord's table is all about. If you, but if you're indifferent, you don't care about those things, then you shouldn't come. You profane the Lord's Supper. Please stand and let's pray. Our merciful and gracious Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed Holy Spirit, we come to you in prayer now with thanksgiving for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that you have given to us. It is a holy ordinance, and we pray that we would not come in a manner that would profane the sacrament, that we would not come in a way where we do not discern the Lord's body that is given to us at the table and where we do not discern the blood that was shed, which is also really part of his body. We, we pray, Lord, that we would not come in a way that would make these things to be common and ordinary. We pray that we would come with a sacred yearning for the blessing that comes through Christ and a desire to have communion in his body and blood. We pray, Father, that you would look upon us with your divine favor and mercy at that table and that we would come away from the table not for the worse, but for the better by your blessing and grace. We thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ welcomes us when we come as little children who need him and who desire to have his grace and help. Oh, Lord, may it be so. May each one of us, Lord, even correct the course that we're on as we think about the analogy of of drifting away, that when we come to the Lord's table, that we would get ourselves back on course. We should do that every Lord's Day when we come to church. And we pray, Lord, that it would be done as we gather in your name and that we would put into practice those things that you have called us to do. We pray, Father, that you would give us the grace that we need for to live for you and to serve you and to love you and to honor you in this world. Oh, Father, we have it not in ourselves, but we have it from our Savior. Coming in a worthy manner means that we know we don't have it from ourselves, that we come looking for it from him. He is our Savior. He is, it is Christ that is crucified. It is to him that we cast our eyes and that we place our trust. We pray in his name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.